In Luke 11, verse 1, the disciples said to Jesus, teach us Jesus how to pray. Not because they weren't praying people, they'd grown up in a culture, grown up in a, in a faith, in the Jewish faith that taught them to pray. They knew how to pray. But they saw in Jesus, as we've been looking at, something completely different. They saw in Jesus the kind of prayer that they wanted to have in their own lives, but they recognized that their prayers were the things that they'd learned and they were just reciting it because that's what they were taught to do. And they said, really, Jesus, we want to pray like you. How do we pray like you? And Jesus then gave them the Lord's Prayer and said, when you pray, pray like this. And in their culture, that prayer kind of blew them away because it, it was a completely revolutionary kind of prayer. But as they stayed with Jesus, they, they began to see and to learn how to pray like Jesus. And so when we get to the book of Acts, we see in the book of Acts, the disciples praying like Jesus was praying and seeing the same results that Jesus was able to accomplish. Jesus even said, didn't he? You'll do even greater things than I will because I'm going to the Father. And I'm going to give you my spirit that will, that will touch each one of you. And you'll go to the corners of the earth. And you'll be able to pray and see the power of God at work through those prayers. And we've been looking together about, well, how do we pray like Jesus? And we said there are five things the Bible says that we need to do. If we want our prayers answered, there are five things. Firstly, it says in John, I think they'll be up on the screen. John 15 verse 7 said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He said, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, but only, he said, if you remain in me. So we have that connectedness and that connectedness is two-way. We remain in Christ, and Christ's word remains in us. And we explored what that meant, but at the, at the core of it is that connection, that deepening of that relationship with Jesus Christ. And then last time we looked in John 14, the next one, he says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And we explored what that meant. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It's not just about saying, Lord Jesus, I want this, I want this, I want this. In Jesus' name, amen, and it's done deal. There's way more to it than that. And it means about having the right obedience to Christ. That when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying as though Jesus was praying that very prayer. That, that it's as though Jesus is standing here and praying that prayer. So it's in accordance with his character, his, who he is, and what he does. Today we're going to look at the third thing. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John, uh, James sorry, chapter 4. James chapter 4. I've got it on the screen though as well. Verse 3. It says, when you ask, and this is in the context in James of them quarreling. Let me start at verse 1 and then we'll get to verse 3. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The third thing that we need to look at is our motivation. Basically, James says in the negative, you don't get because you don't ask with the right motives. In other words, if you ask with the right motives, then God is going to answer your prayer. If you put it in the positive. So if you ask with the right motives, God's going to give you the answer. But if you ask with the wrong motives, then God's not going to answer your prayer. Well, he'll answer it, but he'll say no. That's the answer you're always going to get. Our motivation is critical, it says. Now, our motivation is the reason why we do certain things. I was out last night, went out for a meal. And you know what happens? You're there and you have your, you think, well, I I can't have a a starter, a main course and a dessert. So you kind of think, well, you know, forget the starter. Because it was looking like a place that had decent desserts, right? So I went, you know, okay, I'll just have a main. That'll do. And we all looked around the table. You just going for a main? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going for a main. Yeah, I've had the dessert here. Good desserts. All right. So we all decided on the main course. And then you get to the end of the main course. And your stomach says, David, that was a delicious meal. That's enough. It's full. You don't need any more food now. The belly is full. And then the nice waiter comes along and he says to me, David, well, he didn't say David because he didn't know who I was, but he came and said, sir, desserts. And I said to the waiter, I said, well, there's no calories in looking, is there? So off he goes, good choice, sir. He goes off and he gets the dessert menu. Your body's still saying, David, you don't need any desserts. You're nicely full. Just leave it there. Go home. Pay the bill. Out of there. But then the dessert menu came. One side of A4, stack full of temptation. And I'm like, what should I do? Well, there was no calories in looking, was there? So I looked and I feasted my eyes. And then what happens? Well, I started looking down and I went, you know what? Raspberry sorbet. That's one of my five a day. It's got raspberries. So really, I don't really need it, but actually it will do me good. It's healthy. It's, it's the healthy option here. And I went down and I went, you know what? Vanilla. Vanilla's good for you. It's natural, isn't it? And... and, and there's raspberries on top, you know. So I, you know, so I had the ice cream. Why? Because I knew I was full, but ice cream just seems to slip down in the cracks, doesn't it? You know, it's just, so you're there, and your mind, what is it doing? It's justifying my motivation. I wanted a dessert. I didn't need a dessert. My body definitely didn't need a dessert. I went on the scales this morning, it showed dessert. You know, I didn't need it. But I started to justify having a dessert. Well, you know what? It's ice cream, so it's really nothing anyway. No calories in ice cream. It's just liquid, isn't it? It's like water. 
you know, plus it's got the healthy option of a bit of uh, whatever it was, you know, black currant or uh, whatever, blackberry. So that's, that's good. And everybody else is having dessert. Well, most of the other people are having dessert. There's always one. There's always one that has self-control. But, you know, it'd be rude not to, and, you know, otherwise I'd be sitting there and they'd be feeling guilty. And that just is not good. Not good for a pastor to make other people feel guilty, you know? So I'm sitting, um, uh, you, you know, you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about here. And I, you know, and I thought to myself, you know what? I've worked hard lately. I deserve a dessert once in a while. You know, it's been a long week. And, and I need the energy. I've not been well and I lost my voice. And, you know, maybe, maybe the ice cream will build me up ready for Sunday morning. You know? And so all these things start going through your head and you start justifying I've been good through Lent. You see, you have to understand the motivation. Because whilst we're laughing about doing this with desserts, the truth is we do this with the whole of our lives, don't we? There are things that we want to do and we start to justify those things. Because our motivation says, I want to do this. But the Bible says, James says, you know what? Motivation is critical. Now to truly understand your motivation is really difficult. Proverbs 16 verse 2, if we can have the next screen, says this. All a person's ways seem innocent to them but motives are weighed by the Lord. The number of people that come to me and they, they're there to justify and they want ministerial approval on what they're doing or what they want to do. And I sit there and I listen and I kind of see their motivation, but they don't. For them, it seems innocent. This has got to be what God wants me to do. It has to be. And they justify it and justify it and justify it. And I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But they don't listen because they've already justified it. Their way has already seemed innocent to them. You can't see outside yourself. It's really difficult to see your own motives. Because we have a, a wonderful way, just like dessert, of, of trying to rationalize and understand and convince ourselves that this is the right way. They seem innocent to me. But actually the Lord... What does he look at? He looks at my motives. Jeremiah 17. Can we have the next one? The heart is deceitful. This is the problem. The heart, the heart in the Bible is the core of you, not just, not just the love bit, okay? The heart means really who you are. When you, when you strip away all the facade, all the, all the exterior that you show other people, the heart is you. You at home, on your own, what you're really like, what you know yourself to be. That's your heart. The heart, it says, that is really deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord. What does he search? He searches your heart. He searches your motivation for things and examines your mind. 
And it comes from the heart. Your motivation comes there. And then your mind rationalizes it with all the excuses to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. You see, we do in that order. Our heart, our motivation comes out. Then our brain kicks in and and rationalizes why it's going to be good for us. And then we go off and do it. That's the way we work. And the problem is that we easily fool ourselves. We justify our own motivation, our own motives. We pretend so often that we're being godly. When really we're just acting out of selfish motives. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Might be the next screen, is it? Yeah, there you go. Therefore... Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. God is the one that looks into your life. You know, God, I think, is not so much concerned about outcomes as he is about motivation. Yes, yes, the outcome is important, but God looks into your heart. He wants to know what is coming, going on inside. Why are you doing certain things? What is that motivation behind it? You know, a lot of people, they, they say, don't they? It's not fair. You know, you can have really good people that do fantastic things. And, and Christianity says, if they don't know Jesus, then they're not going to heaven. And then you have really bad Christians that don't do anything for anybody else. And yet they seem to think that they can get there, right? You ever heard that? People say that. And I say, I heard it the other week. Somebody said it to me. And I said, you know the problem? The problem is you're judging by the wrong criteria. God looks at the motivation. Is the motivation coming out of a relationship with him? Or is it coming from somewhere else? Heaven... It's the place where those who want to have an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ have it. It's about that connectedness, that relationship. It's not about whether we do good things or bad things. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. You can only fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, you're the only way, the truth and the life. I can be a pastor my whole life never get to heaven if I don't know Jesus you see God judges the motives and so therefore we need to constantly question what our motivation is now how do we do that this is the tricky thing because the heart is deceitful above all things how do I question my own motivation Because my brain and everything else will tell me my motivation is pure and upright and holy. It will always say that. It will justify what I'm doing. My whole existence is, is, like does that. My whole body does that. My brain does that. I can't help it. When you were two years old or three years old or four years old and you got into trouble, what's the first thing you do? Yes, it's my fault. I will take the punishment. It was my older brother 
He was the bad boy. It was always his fault. He was always blaming me, of course, and I was always blaming him. No, don't, don't look at me. My brother Barry, he, he, was, he, led me, he made me do it. You see how tall he is, how big he is? He's two years older than me, and he, he bullied me into doing this bad thing. Don't look at me. I'm innocent. You know, I'm going to be a pastor one day. Don't look at me. I've got a halo already growing. It's him. He's bad. He's evil. You know? We do it. We get into the Eve syndrome. Well, don't look at me. And the Adam syndrome. It's not my fault. It's, it's this woman you placed here with me. Don't look at me, the woman said. It's not my fault. It's this snake that you had to go and make. We pass the boat. We justify ourselves all the time. So how? How do we check our own motives? Well, the first thing, of course, is this. The Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Can we have the next screen? Oh, here we go. How do we know our own motives? The first one is this. And again, the Word of God. Okay, and one more. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, there's so much in there that we're not even going to look at. But you know, when we stand before the Lord, when, we, our, our, when our lives are opened up, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see the motivation for every little thing that you've done. That's what you're going to see. You're not going to see what you did. He's going to show you the real reason why you did these things. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Except that Jesus is already there with you and you've been redeemed. That makes it just an amazing thought. Well, the, the Bible says in Hebrews that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. When it says it judges, what it means is that it kind of assesses it. It takes it out and looks at it. You know, the other week I was telling you about a washing machine that broke down. That's what I did. I judged the washing machine. That's the same context. Meaning, it was broken. So I took out the bit that was broken. I took it apart. I looked at it, figured out what was wrong with it, where all the coins had got in. And I put it all back together and I fixed it, put it back. That's what judging means. It's not sitting there in judgment upon us, being critical, right? Get that out of your heads. Judging here means that it, it takes out our thoughts and our attitudes and it lays them open to look at, to put them back again, right? It just makes them open and available. And God does that. The Word of God does that to us or for us. You see, the more you read the Word of God, the more you understand the Word of God, the more you'll see your true self. That's one of the reasons why we don't read it as much as we should. The more you understand this, this is the character of God in here. You want to know what God's like? Read the Word of God. But the more you read the character of God, the more it acts as a kind of a reflection of who you are. 
So I stand before the word of God and the word of God says something and I go, oh my goodness. I don't like how that reflects on me. It's like holding up a torch to me. And I go, oh man, like I, I don't do that. I don't do And so I see the character of Jesus. I see the character of God and I see my own character. And as Paul says, we then come to that place where we say all have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. That's why grace is so amazing. But if I want to understand my motivation, the first thing I need to do is to, to feed on the Word of God. It's like I understand when, uh, when, um, when you have kind of like a fraud squad or years ago, somebody applied to become uh, like a member of the fraud squad in a bank. And they sat this person down and they just gave them a whole load of banknotes and just said, look at them, look at them. So he started studying these banknotes and they gave him a magnifying glass. He'd look really, really closely. And they just started looking, looking, looking at these banknotes. And the, the, the boss left them. They came back at lunchtime. They were bored out of their mind, just staring at five pound notes, 10 pound notes. And it, Guy comes back at lunchtime and he says, the, the, the uh, student said, like, well, what am I looking for? Is like one of them counterfeit or something? Like, what's, they all look the same to me. No, just keep looking. Went away. Says, go for lunch, come back, keep looking. So a stack of them just looking, looking, looking. End of the day, he's like bored of it. Like, this is the bad, worst job in the history of jobs. All I got to do is stare at these things. Came back at the end of the day. Said, great. I haven't found the counterfeit one yet because he was convinced one of them must be. They must slip one in there to see. Next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. By the Friday, he was fed up, as you can imagine. He said, look, what am I doing? This is pointless. I'm just looking at banknotes. The guy said, until you know, until you know everything there is to know about that banknote, he said, then you'll never see a counterfeit note. Because if you look at the real, if you, if you get the real inside of you, just by staring at it over and over and over again, when a counterfeit comes, you'll see it straight away. If I show you a load of counterfeits, all you'll learn is the particular bit that's wrong with these things. And then something else will change, you won't even recognize it. Because it'll be new. If I show you the real, you'll soon see the false. And what we have in the scriptures is the real character of God. So if we read that, then we begin to see within ourselves what isn't in keeping with the character of God. And then we can open that up to the Spirit to come in and transform us. You want to know your motives? Understand who the character of God is, what the character of God is. The second thing we need to do is this, next screen. Okay, next one. Is ask God for help. God wants you to understand your motivation. It's not like a mystery that he doesn't want you ever to know. And then he's going to judge you and open it up and say, ha, see? That's why you really went for that ice cream dessert. See? No, he wants you to understand your motivation. Psalm 139 says this. Next, next one, please, Brian. 
right at the end of Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says, search me, know me, reveal to me my heart. Show me if there's anything within me that's not in keeping with you. Show me my motivation. Lord, show it to me. Reveal it to me so that kind of bypass my brain and my defense mechanisms and everything else so that I can truly see what my real motivation is. Because I want my motivation to be in keeping with you. Ask him to help you. One of the worst courses I ever took in college was one of the best courses. That was counseling. The first counseling course I ever took. I'll never forget it. Because we did biblical counseling. And when I did that course, they said, before you counsel anybody else, you have to counsel yourself. It's just a done deal. Before you can start looking into other people's lives or allowing them to reveal themselves to you, you have to look into yourself. And when I started looking into myself, I did not like what I saw. It was like God holding up this, this torch inside of me. And I went, my goodness, is that really me? Do I really do those things? That was that moment where God searched me and revealed to me truly who I am. But it's a moment when you can start to change. And when you say, Lord, you need to come and deal with this stuff. Come and transform this stuff. And that's the next thing. Next one, Brian, please. Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, God wants to come into you and create that pure heart. God wants to come in and create those right motivations within you. So you ask him to reveal it, ask him where he needs to come in. And then when he shows you, you can ask him to come in and say, Lord, just like David, create in me a pure heart. I want that pure heart. I want that upright spirit. I want that spirit, that motivation that comes from you. Because without it, we don't have our prayers answered. The third thing, so we have the word of God. We can ask God for help. And then you can ask yourself these things. I came across this this week as I was preparing. Eight questions that you can ask yourself. And I think these are so important. I've actually made a card like this for everybody. If you want to take one home, it's got some of these scripture verses on the back. And it's got these eight questions I'm going to go through right now. You can take one away with you afterwards. Stick it in your Bible. Stick it somewhere where you can recognize it. And if you want to evaluate your motives, ask these questions. Go to the Word of God. Ask God for help. But then ask these. The first question is this. If no one ever knows what I'm doing. Okay, next screen, Brian, please. Oh, there you go. You're ahead of me. Awesome. 
If no one ever knows what I am doing, what I'm giving or what I'm serving or where I'm sacrificing, would I still do it? You see, that question is really, whose praise am I really seeking? And it's easy to say yes. It's easy to say yes to that. In our heads, but I'm not so sure in our hearts. If no one ever knows, ever knows, would you still do it? You can have all these later on the card, so they're all written out. It's not always an easy question to answer that. It's easy for us just to go, oh, of course I would, of course I would. But actually, if the reality strikes and no one ever sees you doing it, do you then slip it into conversations? Hey, do you know what I was doing the other day? Or mention it or, you know, or do it again, making sure somebody might be around at that time, just in case they happen to wander in, see you. Well, it wasn't me, Lord, but, you know. Would you still do it? Second one. If there's no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? You know, often I used to ask my boys, or I hear it all the time today. You ask somebody, would you do this for me? And they go, what's, what's in it for me? I'll do it if you pay me. I'll do it if, if I get something back. Now, we might not do that as adults directly, but we do it indirectly. What's in it for me? Why, why would I come and do that? Would I still do it if there's nothing in return? You see, am I doing it for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ? And actually the return comes from him, or am I doing it because I want a return from you guys? Where's my return coming from? Would I still do it if there's no return? Third one. Ooh, would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? You know the, you know the brutal word in that sentence? Joyfully. <laughs> well, I might take a lesser position if God asked me to, but I wouldn't be happy about it. Don't ask me to be happy about it, Lord. I might do it with grumbling. I might do it because, you know, well, what choice do I have if God really wants that for me? But if God says, David, I want you to do this for me. Hey, look, I've got standards. I'm a pastor. I did eight years of theological training for this. You want me to give that up and go and do this? Would you do it? Would you? ask yourself that question fourth one am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel really this is about where I'm going to get my self worth you see our self worth so often comes or is dependent on others isn't it I want, I desire the praise of others you know, sometimes when I walk out here on a Sunday and nobody says anything, 
I don't hear them, you know, like they go out, you, you guys go out for coffee and then you forget all about the sermon and, and, and you get on with life and you're just chattering away together. And I go home and there hasn't been one single thing about, oh, that was so awesome today, Pastor. Thank you so much for preaching that word. You go home and you think, man, that was rubbish today. That must have been terrible. Nobody said anything. But actually, what am I doing? I'm depending on other people to give me my self-worth about whether the Word of God's been preached. I'm not asking Jesus. I'm not saying, Jesus, did you really flow through me today or not? No, that doesn't matter. You see, what matters is that you guys recognize that Jesus is flowing through me and you tell me. And then I can go home feeling good about myself. And even if Arsenal get absolutely hammered by Man City this afternoon, still I'll feel good about myself because, you know, I had five good comments today. Oh, thank you, Jesus, you know. But actually, what am I really doing? What I'm doing is I'm saying my self-worth is coming from you guys, not from Jesus. That it's dependent on you to build me up not on my relationship with Jesus Christ. Am I doing this for others? Or am I doing it because it makes me feel good? Or am I solely doing it for Jesus? Next one. Oh, if I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? Often when we get into a hardship, when we get into suffering, when we get into a challenge, oh, well, this is God shutting the door. This is God's way of showing me that I'm obviously going down the wrong pathway. Now, sometimes it is. But sometimes it's actually going through difficulty. Thank God that Jesus didn't turn away when he met opposition and suffering. He'd have never have gone to Jerusalem. Thank God that the people in the Bible that we read about who went through so much hardship and challenge, but they just kept true to the pathway. You think about almost anybody in the scriptures. I don't know where the theology has come from, the way we think that as soon as we know Jesus Christ, everything is going to be an open highway and there's no suffering. Some people say that, but the scriptures teach us that actually you're going to go through hardship. You're going to go through times of difficulty. There will be suffering. There will be struggle. Jesus had to go through Gethsemane and the cross to gain the victory. You and me have to go through times of Gethsemane. And even times not like the cross, but you know what I mean. Our cross to get the victory. But we know that he is with us in those times. And if you have to suffer, if you have to struggle, but you know it's what God wants you to do, are you going to keep going? Number six, along with that, if others misunderstand or criticize my actions, will I stop? You know, 60%, 60% of pastors quit within five years because of that. 60%. They leave their jobs. They go with their families. They uproot and go to Bible college, the seminary. They train. 
They last five years on average within a church and then they leave the ministry altogether, 60% of them. Because others start criticizing. And when they criticize, when people misunderstand and it's, you start getting been bombarded with that criticism, so many go, you know, this is a price I'm not willing to pay. And not just for themselves, but from their families and everybody else. Because it's not just you that gets criticized. People find a way to criticize you through others around you. You've been there. You know what I mean. They find ways. And what they do, what, what is criticism all about? It's about molding you to their agenda. That's what it's about. The British are brilliant at it. Trust me, I'm Brit. I know. It's what we do. If we don't like what we see, if we want you to change, we'll start criticizing you. And it's like a force that comes on the side to mold you into what I want you to be. But you can never be what I want you to be because when you get there, I'll criticize you again. You know, and again and again because I want to just have my hand on you and direct you wherever I want you to go. And that's what, that's what happens. We all do it. But if you know that God has called you to do something, if you know what your actions are, then criticism, that won't change it. That won't divert you from the course that God has called you on. You see your own motivation. And you go, no, you what? My motivation is pure. My mo motivation is what God wants. I'm not going to be swayed by the criticism and the desires of others. My motivation is on Jesus Christ. Number seven, just two more. If those who I am serving never show gratitude or repay me in any way, will I still do it? Kind of similar, but also, I've had this so many times. You do something for others. It's like Christmas. How many of you at Christmas always has an extra present by the front door in case somebody comes around and gives you, you know, a bag of quality street or something and you've forgotten them, one of the neighbors. So you have an extra gift there. My parents always used to do that. If one of the neighbors down the road, you know, just came around unexpectedly, it was a real nuisance. They weren't invited. But they came over, Merry Christmas. She would have an extra box made up, ready, wrapped. Oh, this is for you. I'm glad you popped round. I was going to bring it over later. You liar. You know, you were not. But, you know, you do something. You expect to be thanked. How many, how many, uh, how many of us have grumbled? I did this for them. Nothing. Nothing. And you complain and you grumble because you don't get the thanks that you think you deserve. Then where's your motivation? Your motivation is not about serving Jesus Christ, is it? It's about you. Last one. Do I judge my success or failure based on my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do or how I compare with others? <sighs> Mother Teresa said it best. She said, we've not been called to be successful, but faithful. And a woman in her position, ministering to those people who were dying, 
She said, we've not been called to be successful, but faithful. God has given each one of us things to do. And we're called to be faithful in doing those things. Success may come, but success is our faithfulness. That is success. If I am faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, why I am the pastor of the church here, then I am successful. Success is not measured by the number of people that come every week. That's human success. Success is measured by my faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Success in your life is measured by your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Not by how wealthy you are, not by how many people you have touched, not by anything else, but your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That is it. He will one day say to you, what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not well done, David, because you packed them in at Trinity. No. Not well done because you were there for 25 years or 20 years or you were there when you were an old man with no hair and a Zimmer frame. Well done, David. You, you stay, no. David, you were faithful. Well done. That's all. The results are his. The blessing is his. It's not mine. He gives that. My responsibility, your responsibility is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. Aren't they cool and challenging, those eight things? I read those and I went, whoa, that's worth giving. Ask yourself honestly those eight things. You see, God desires for us to serve with a pure heart and an upright spirit. He's given us everything we need. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, so on. He's given us that so that our hearts, the core of who we are, may become pure and upright. So that we serve God with the right motivation. 1 Thessalonians says this. Let me find it a sec. Oh, I've forgotten where I was. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 4. It says, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. This bit, we are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You see, it all comes down to that one thing. Who are you trying to please? Where is your motivation? With every decision that you make, where is your motivation? With every action that you do, where is your motivation? God has given us everything we need so that our motives might be in keeping with His. He's given us grace when we fail. But before you pray, before any time you come up and pray, or you get on your knees to pray to God, have a motivation check. Before you're faced with anything, have a motivation check and say, Lord, reveal to me what are my motives when I'm about to pray for this.
What is it that's really going on inside of me? Is this prayer about your will or is this about me? Are you going to answer this prayer because you've promised to answer because I'm praying in accordance with your will? My motives are pure. My motives are your motives. Because if I pray this prayer and it's my motivation, what does it say in James? We have the next screen. It says you're not going to get an answer. You do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So before you pray, ask God. Because he's there with the resources of heaven wanting you to pray. He's dying for you to receive answers to your prayer. There's nothing greater satisfaction from God than a child of his comes on their knees with a pure heart, with pure motives, and asks him, and he says, finally, I can pour out my blessing on that child, on that situation. I can use it, I can flow through them, because they're asking with the right motives. When you come to pray, do a motive check. And do one of two things. Either change your prayer because your motives are not right. Or pray with that knowledge and assurance that God is going to hear you and answer your prayer. Because you're praying with the right motives. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you. For just this one verse from the book of James. But Lord, the whole Bible, you talk about looking into us and searching our hearts. Search me and know me, Lord. Lord, know us right now. We open our hearts to you. We sang that song earlier, Blessed Be Your Name. And that song talks about, Blessed Be Your Name, when the sun's shining down on me and I'm lying on a beach and it's fantastic. But also, blessed be your name when, when life is tough and it's hard and I'm walking through the wilderness and I don't like it. Still, blessed be your name. We can only sing that and live that when our motives are pure. So Lord, transform our hearts. Do that work within each one of us so that our motivation may be right may be holy, godly, may be true to you. Jesus' prayers were answered because his motives were pure in keeping with his heavenly Father. May our motivation be that too. And where it's not, Lord, forgive us, transform us, correct us, and renew us so that our motivation may become more and more in keeping with yours. And so we may see more and more answers to the prayers that we offer. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.